Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash GFE. This independent learning activity is funded by Pfizer Canada. Hello, my name is Dr. Jeffrey Liu, and I'm a professor of medicine and a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre and University of Toronto. Today, we will be discussing and considering how to select the first-line therapy for patients with ALK-positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Now, there are a number of current challenges when we're treating ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer patients with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs, as they're known. One of these challenges is selecting the appropriate first-line therapy because the median progression-free survival decreases with each additional line of therapy, it has become critical to choose the most appropriate first-line therapy for every patient. We also know that most patients will eventually fail their first-line therapy, and the relapses very commonly will involve the central nervous system. Additionally, nearly all patients will develop resistance with either ALK-dependent or ALK-independent mechanisms. This means that we need to choose our best option first, and so crizotinib has largely been replaced by the next-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors in the first-line setting. So what are the current options physicians have, and what are the data supporting the use of each of these various tyrosine kinase inhibitors? The ESMO treatment guidelines for first-line TKIs include the first-generation crizotinib and seritinib, the second-generation electinib and brigatinib, and the third generation lalotinib. However, crizotinib and seritinib are not actually used in Canada anymore for the first-line setting, and the choice is really based on electinib, brigatinib, and lalotinib. And this is based on the ALEX, the ALTA-1L, and the CROWN trials. So the data for the three trials are presented here. There are a few things to note. Both the ALEX and ALTA-1L trials that is, electinib and brigatinib trials, had a hazard ratio of around 0.50 when compared with the same control arm, crizotinib. On the other hand, lalotinib had a much more significant hazard ratio of 0.27 when compared to the same comparator, crizotinib. It should be noted that this was the case when we were dealing with either investigator or blinded assessments. It's also important to note that although we are making cross-trial comparisons, that um, these trials should not be directly compared in, uh, in general. When we translate the hazard ratio into median progression-free survival, what we notice is that both electinib and brigatinib at the three-year mark have fallen below 50%, with electinib at 46% and brigatinib at 43%. Now, in contrast with elotinib, at the three-year mark, 64% of patients were still on lalotinib. This is well above the 50% line in comparison with electinib and brigatinib, where fewer than 50% of the patients were still on the drug. Another key outcome that is critically important for ALK-positive patients is the ability of these drugs to control brain metastasis, or in other words, central nervous system disease. All three drugs, electinib, brigatinib, and lalotinib, that are currently being used in the frontline setting have very reasonable control of intracranial disease with the objective response rates ranging from 78 to 83%. However, the depth of control is different 
between these drugs. The complete response rate for lalotinib is 72% in comparison with the second generation drugs of brigatinib at 28% and electinib at 38%. Comparing these three drugs with the older drug, crizotinib, you can see why we no longer use crizotinib in this instance, because the intracranial complete response rates are exceedingly low, and the intracranial overall response rates are also very low as well. So, tyrosinase inhibitor therapy should be directed at brain metastasis, and in this setting, lalotinib is the most potent of these tyrosinase inhibitors. It has a very broad spectrum of efficacy. It gets into the brain very, very clearly, both in terms of controlling brain metastasis, but also in preventing the development of brain metastasis in individuals who did not have brain metastasis at baseline. Safety is a very important consideration since we hope that patients will benefit from therapy for as long as possible. It is important to note that these ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitors have very different side effect profiles. Of the three, electinum has the fewest of the adverse events, with slightly more occurring with regatinum and elotinib. However, the adverse events leading to permanent treatment discontinuation is quite low in all three instances, at 15% for electinib, 13% for begotinib, and only 7% for lalotinib in the CROWN trial. The most commonly reported adverse events are different for each of these three drugs. For electinib, this includes constipation, anemia, and fatigue. For begotinib, it includes a number of gastrointestinal side effects and some biochemical side effects, as well as unusual respiratory complications that can occur in a small percentage of patients, but usually within the first few days of its use and at the 90 milligram dose. In contrast, the lalotinib hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia are common, and other things such as edema, increased weight, cognitive effects, and peripheral neuropathy can be seen as well. Although these side effects may appear different, they are in fact similar to what we may encounter with other new potent oncology drugs such as entrectinib. In summary, some key takeaways from this presentation are that there needs to be choice available. This is really important. Different patients may prefer different drugs, and different patients may tolerate some drugs better than others. Having said that, the third-generation drug lalotinib seems to have the best efficacy data and should be considered in the first-line setting, knowing that there are possibilities to switch to one of the other drugs, namely brigatinib and or electinib, if a patient were to become intolerant to lalotinib. But the most important message is that there needs to be a discussion between patients and their doctors over the appropriate first-choice selection. Hello, my name is Dr. Jeffrey Liu, and I'm at uh, the Princess Margaret Cancer Center as a medical oncologist. So in this presentation, I will be focusing on how to manage adverse events for each of these ALK tyrosine kinase inhibitors available in Canada for first-line use. We will be discussing the key adverse events that can occur in patients receiving tyrosine kinase inhibitors against the ALK fusions proteins with electinib, and these include weight increase, peripheral edema, but also um, dysgeusia and myalgia as well. For brigatinib, I will be discussing peripheral edema, dysgeusia, and this unusual but rare side effects known as early onset 
pulmonary event, or EOPE. And for lalotinib, side effects include weight increase, peripheral neuropathy, cognitive effects, and central nervous system effects, Although some of the side effects may seem new to physicians who have not prescribed lalotinib before, in actual fact, some of these side effects are actually seen in other drugs that have similar targets. For instance, drugs such as entrectinib and larotrectinib have similar central nervous system side effects as lalotinib. And the dysgeusia that's actually seen in entrectinib is also seen with electinib and brigantinib. So we're going to use lalotinib as a prototype. We need to first prepare the patient and the caregiver then monitor for toxicities, and find out if the patient is affected subjectively and if there is functional detriment. So is there objective evidence that it's bothering the patient? Then we focus on managing the side effects either through mitigation strategies, as well as in some cases, interrupting and or reducing the dose. And finally, we will be reassessing to see if further modifications are necessary. So this cycle of prepare, monitor, manage and reassess is the framework that we will be using. When we're preparing patients, it is important to know when these side effects are likely to occur. This will help the patient and also their caregivers prepare themselves. Although these side effects can occur over a broad range of time periods, the hyperlipidemia tends to occur very early, often within the first month or two. The mood effects and the central nervous system effects occur somewhere between one and four months and the edema occurs somewhere within the first few months, whereas the peripheral neuropathy and the weight increase occur more around the third to six months. So in this way, it might be important to, to monitor the patient monthly for the first few months. And if they're doing well, then later on switch over to monitoring every three or four months thereafter. When we're managing the non-laboratory adverse events, there are a few things that one should really focus on. If you have weight gain or edema or even peripheral neuropathy or central nervous system effects, lifestyle modifications and toxicity management will be important. And I'll discuss those in the next few slides. But if it's mildly to moderately bothersome to the patient, one needs to consider maybe pausing, holding the drug, or maybe even decreasing the, the dose of the drug to the next level down which with a lot in it means going down by 25 milligrams from 100 milligrams to 75 milligrams. Then if the patient continues to do poorly, maybe even consider decreasing it further to 50 milligrams in this setting. Beyond dose modifications and pauses, there are other management strategies we can use to address key adverse events. For hyperlipidemia, although one can consider dietary changes, usually starting the patient on a statin or increasing the statin will be very useful and necessary. And if that doesn't work, adding azetamibi or fibrates might be helpful in this setting. For edema, mitigation strategies include compression garments, raising the lower parts of the body above the heart, increasing exercise, limiting dietary salt, physiotherapy, and even lymphedema massage. And for weight gain, strategies include food intake counseling and dietary advice in addition to exercise. But there may be some benefit to temporary and judicious use of diuretics. And although there is no data for the use of semaglutide or other incretins in the management of lolotinib-induced weight gain, any use of such drugs should be under expert physician management. For peripheral neuropathy, use of a night splint 
as well as dealing with any weight gain that might be associated with neuropathy may also help. For the central nervous side effects, the most important thing is early dose interruption and dose reduction. So this is quite specific for central nervous system side effects. It is unusual to have to do more than this in order to control the central nervous side effects if the dose interruption and the dose reduction occur very early. In the case of brigantinib, we typically manage the early onset pulmonary events by starting patients on a Monday or a Tuesday. That way, if patients develop shortness of breath or cough, it usually occurs on the Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, and we're able to be contacted and manage these symptoms. And if these symptoms are severe, the general recommendation is to hold the drug and then restart it at 90 milligrams several weeks later. Practically all patients will develop some form of either clinical or subclinical pulmonary infiltrates. And the majority of these infiltrates will go away if you continue using the drugs and if the patient gets over this hump, particularly if the patient can continue to stay on the drug past the first week. Electinib has its own unique side effects as well. The anemia is thought to be related to hemolysis, which can lead to an elevated bilirubin. On top of this, this level of continuous low-level hemolysis can lead to fatigue, and the management of this for electinib patients is typically dose reduction. So in summary, there are a few things to keep in mind. If a patient develops CNS toxicities while on out-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors, it is almost always important to consider early dose interruption followed by dose reduction. On the opposite side, when you have hyperlipidemia, you usually don't have to change the dose at all. You basically add the statin and or additional drugs to help control it. When it comes to other side effects such as weight gain, um, as well as peripheral edema and neuropathy, it is important to consider both non-pharmacologic as well as pharmacologic agents to help. And with this, it will be useful to actually utilize these methods to reduce and mitigate some of these adverse events that are seen with elotinib, as well as the other agents of electinib and brigantinib. Thank you very much for listening to the discussion of adverse events. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.